The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Hebrews chapter 12, if you would return back there, Hebrews chapter 12. We spent the better part of an hour this morning covering the first three sections. I've divided verse 1 into four sections. We spent the first part of an hour, at least better part of an hour, covering the first three parts of that. Uh, Tonight, if the Lord wills, we'll cover the latter part of verse 1, verse 2, 3, and we'll conclude probably only speaking less than five minutes on verse 4. Of course, we did that after balancing all of that on spending an hour on the first verse of chapter 11 this morning uh, also. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 to begin, we'll just reread our text. Wherefore, seeing we're also compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, And let us run with patience, and remember we're going to translate that word every time, endurance, for our memory. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, And was set down on the right hand of the throne in God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. Have ye not resisted unto blood striving against sin? And verse 5 picks up with yet another section considering the chastisement of God. We began talking or speaking this morning about faithfulness. As a matter of fact, we're tying faithfulness directly together with the idea of endurance. We may mention the fact that when faithfulness is discussed many occasions, for example, if it's discussed from Revelation 2 and verse 10, faithfulness is discussed from the idea of faithfulness in light of persecution. The same thing could be said if you were to talk about faithfulness from Matthew chapter 10 as it's spoken of by Jesus in verse 22. Be thou faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life, or he that endureth to the end shall be saved. That's speaking of faithfulness and endurance in light of persecution. And even though it's the fact, and I mentioned this in the first hour this morning, even though it's the fact that you and I are getting to a place in life where more and more it's more likely at least that you and I are going to be suffering persecution, even in light of what happened a few weeks ago, a physical persecution. What we need to be prepared for is not just persecution per se from the outside world and physical persecutions and emotional persecutions. We have to be ready for daily life. We have to be ready, and you've seen this in the last few years especially, we have to be ready for the fourth quarter of life. You know how it's the case many times on the sporting field, and I think everybody's taking hold of that. They go out uh, out of the third quarter, they go to the sidelines, and as everybody comes out, the entire stadium stands up, all the players stand on the sidelines, many of the boys that are out on the field, they all stand and they hold up those four fingers Deciding to set their minds into a different mindset for the fourth quarter. It's easy to live the Christian life in the first three quarters of life. But that fourth quarter 
is something different. We have to be ready to endure, as this text says, to endure until the end. Now, we made mention this morning from the first three phrases in the verse. The first one, I'll just reflect upon it. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses. First of all, we had those encouragers. That was Hebrews chapter 11. We made light of three of those characters, as a matter of fact. We mentioned the fact of how it was that we could look up into the stands and we could see Noah. We could see how that he would say unto us, you're not alone in this. I've been alone before. I don't know what it's like to feel like that I'm the only one in this world that was able to live this life. I'm the only one wanting to live faithful. You've not the only one that's ever endured that. I've been there and done that. We mentioned Abraham. We said, you're not the only one in this life who's ever been sent out in the life to do something different that you're not used to doing, to be put in a situation you weren't expecting, be put into a place in life where you're saying, you know what, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the next day's going to be like, but I'm going to endure it anyway. We mentioned Moses and how it's the case that as we grow older and we go weary, that he could stand up in that stadium and the cloud of witnesses and he could look down to us and he'd say, look, I know what it's like to feel old, to feel washed up, to feel like my best days have already passed and still to have the weight of the world placed on my shoulders. He he knows what's that like. So we understand what it's like to have those encouragers. But then we looked at the next phrase, and we also found out about that encumbrance. And I ask you to kind of translate that word a little bit different. Wherefore, we see we're compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses, but let us lay aside every weight, King James says. Some translations even say, let us lay aside the encumbrances. The word there literally means to take off the fat, to take off all those things that are laid upon us that are just extra things in life. Many of those things are not bad. They're actually good things, but they just weighed us down. They just spend up and waste all of our time in life when we could be doing the good things in life. That is, the things that are good in the eyes of God. The things that just spend up all the time that we could be using to serve God. We have to get rid of some of those things sometimes. And of course, for you, for me, all that baggage that we carry around, those things are different one to the other. Then we looked at the next phrase and we noticed that he said that we have to lay aside those encumbrances, yes, those extra weights, but also quoting it directly, and the sin which does so easily beset us, that is, those things that entangle us also, the things that can sometimes trip us up. And I tried to emphasize, and I'm not trying to go back over this because I don't have time to explain all of it, but he's directly quoting that. He said it is the sin, singular in nature, It's not these sins as we typically might think about it. And as I said this morning, where you say, well, I've had this sin entangle me at times, this sin entangle me yet another time, and that sin over here that's handled me in this time and that time, that's not what he said. It's the sin, which contextually between chapters 11 and 12 seems to be just simply the sin of selfishness, the sin of saying what I want to do in life is more important than what God has set for me to do. So when we think about enduring, we have to endure in light of then, in light of the encouragement, in light of the encumbrances, and in light of the entanglement. Now, here's what I said this morning in Bible class, and Tom whispered it to all of you as I asked. 85% of what we wanted to say all day long is coming tonight. That doesn't mean we'll spend 85% more time tonight than we did this morning on the clock. Don't worry about that. But 85% of what we need to say is coming in the next two or three points. And I want you to pay close attention to it. 
The next idea is just that. It is the idea or the point of endurance. The next phrase, it's the last phrase there in verse 1. I'm putting it all back together. Wherefore, see, we're also compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with, put it in your margin here. Let us run with endurance, patience, King James. The race that is set before us. If you were to examine the word endurance, and we're going to look more into it a little bit later. But if you examine the word endurance, the first thing you have to know about this, if you look into some kind of a a Greek dictionary, some lexicon, or however your resources come up, most of the time the easiest way to do that nowadays is on a computer or some electronic device. The first thing you're going to discover about this is that this particular word is in what's called a present tense. That's the verb tense of it. It's in the present tense. What that means is you've got to keep on keeping on with this endurance. That is to say, at no point can I say, well, there was a day and time as a Christian where I endured, where I went through a difficult spot in my life, but as things went on and as life rocked on and as things uh, challenged me, it got to a point where I no longer felt like enduring. Have you ever met with anybody, I'm not talking about Christian life, normally Christians are the ones... We may as well admit it and be honest about it. We're the ones who are too prideful to admit our faults sometimes, at least with the mouth. We're, we're not normally the ones who want to talk about it. But you ever met with anybody just in, in physical life? They say, you know what? The first time I dealt with this problem or that, it wasn't too bad. But when it kept coming back again and again and again, I just gave up. I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, the first time the boss came in and he told me my work was this and my work was that, I was okay with that. But when he kept just pestering me and just kept crawling my case and kept doing it, I finally one day, I just told him, take that job and just shove it. I just wasn't going to work here anymore. Now, that was a song, but you see the picture here. Or the first time the doctor came in and told me, you know, this problem that you've got with your leg, uh, we're going to do a little tweak on it. We're going to do a little minor surgery. We're going to give you a pill. We're going to help you feel better. But when it kept happening again and again, finally I just said, forget it. I I guess I'm just doomed to be in this position. This is just not going to work anymore. And you can go on and on and on, make your list in your life of things that may happen to us physically where we say, I could endure it, I could deal with it to a point, but there's a point where you just have to say, enough's enough. And we may admit some of that physically sometimes, but few want to admit that spiritually, but we know that's sometimes the case. But just the verb tense of this word says, keep on keeping on. Now, if you examine it just a little bit farther, and I want to help you to see this, reading the phrase again, he says, let us lay aside every weight, the sentence of your sentence, let us run with patience or endurance the race that's set before us. When you look at this word a little bit farther, this, this idea of in patience or endurance is the Greek word hooper. Monet, and I'm not necessarily saying that right. But Hooper Monet, the, the two uh, 
parts of the word here. First of all, hoopa is where we get our English word hyper or hooper. I can't even say it right now. I messed myself up. But hypodermic needle means to go under. And monet means to bear. It means to bear up under, to go under. What that means is sometimes you've just got to keep bearing under more and more and more. Let's imagine this. Let's just draw a picture. Lord willing, this will never happen. Let's imagine for whatever reason uh, you've had a flat tire on the side of the road. and You decided that you are the one, you're the only one there. You've got to change this flat tire. You get out beside of the side of the road there. You've got the jack going. You've got everything seemingly going pretty good. You're trying to get everything positioned. You're trying to get the tire off. And for whatever reason, you decide you've got to just kind of stick your arm underneath the car. And the car falls. Now imagine the car falls on your arm. And for whatever reason, you can kind of gauge how much weight is on there. Let's say that there's 10 pounds of weight. How that could happen, I don't know. But there's 10 pounds of weight on your arm. And you say, well, as long as there's just 10 pounds on it, I'm good laying here. I'm all right with that. And I'll pick this up. But what if there was 20 pounds and you say, well, you know what? That's not too bad either. But if there's 1,000 pounds, you say, I'll just die right now. I'll just give up. Nobody's going to do that. You still want out from under the car. You still want someone to help you up. You're not going to give up in that case just because the level of the amount of weight has gotten greater, just because the pressure has seemingly gotten harder. You still want to escape. You still want out of that. Let me show you something that I... I'm going to admit, and I hope that anybody would be willing to admit as a Bible student, that they've missed something for way too long. You're in Hebrews chapter 12. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Hebrews chapter 10. For me, it's one page flip. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse number 32. Verse 32. Here's what the writer, of course, the original author being God, whomever the penman be here, but what the writer here says. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. But call to remembrance. Call to remembrance the former days in which ye have illuminated. Ye endured with the great flight of afflictions. Now I want you to just underscore that word endured. It is exactly the same word that is translated patience over in chapter 12 and verse 1. Phrase number four, same word in the Greek, endured, and then over there, patience. That's why I say both of them could easily and should probably be translated as endured. But let us call to remembrance the former days in which ye have illuminated, ye have endured the great flight of afflictions, partly whilst thou were made a a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst uh, thou came in the companion's Of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing yourselves that ye have been in heaven, and better enduring, enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which ye have great recompense of your reward. Watch verse 36. For ye have need of patience. 
Change the word right there. Same Greek word. For ye have need of endurance, that after you have done the will of God, that you might receive the promise. Now, what's he saying right there? I'm going to just break it down and try to change some of it in my mindset for better English. He says, first of all, in this phrase here, verse 33, he says, you've been made fun of. You've been picked at. You've been persecuted. Your friends have left you. Have left you. You've lost your jobs. People have robbed your houses. They've taken your goods. You've had to do without. You have been, your friends have been in prison. You're in danger of being in prison. Your rewards of this life have all been taken away. And you have had endurance and you still need endurance. That's what he says if you put verses 32 and through verse 36 together. Now you face that over to chapter 12. Same context really. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 really make up a good unit. You put that together, what he's saying is, you my friends, to whom he's writing, you my friends have endured before and it's high time you keep on enduring. So when you get over to chapter 12, reading it with that light in it, Wherefore, seeing you are also compassed about with such a great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every way, and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance just like you've done before. You've endured all of these things. You've had all the terrible things of life that could possibly happen because you followed God. That's what was said in verse 36. He says, after you've done the will of God that you might receive His promises, because you did what God said, you you had to deal with all this, and it's time you keep on enduring. But there's more interesting word or terminology in this phrase, chapter 12, verse 1. Right before he talks about that patience or endurance, he says, let us run with patience. Right before you get down to the word endurance or that hooper monet, you get to that word or the word run or the, the running here, He's speaking of, a, of a, a race that he's going to reflect upon in the next phrase or so. He says... Uh, let us run with patience the race. You're running a what? A race that is set before us. The word race, and maybe you've heard this before, is a Greek word, agon. It's where we get our English word, agony. What he's saying is what you're going to be running in with endurance. I'm building a sandwich here. We've got a slice of bread on each side. We put the meat in the middle. What you've got is a race that you're running in with endurance. This is something that's going to cause you much agony. In other words, it's not going to be easy. I've stated many a time, I think sometimes I get looked at cross-eyed for saying it. But especially down toward what we traditionally would think of as the invitation of a sermon, that I hope that no one is ever mistaken or misinformed in the thinking that if they choose to obey the gospel on any given day or hour, that their life is just going to instantaneously get better and stay that way. Because in, in likely, in all likelihood, in some areas of their life, it could get much worse. 
Now, if they're living a life as an alcoholic or something like that, sure, uh, them obeying the gospel and, and having an example such as Christ and other Christians surrounding them, then they could get away from the alcoholism, and certainly they ought to, and they must what, because of repentance. And, and so, Yes, that, that part of their life is going to get better. But the alcoholic friends that they're going to instantly lose... You know, maybe the fact that they can't go out uh, to the club with the boys after work, they may end up losing their position, and, and there's, there's a lot of things that could be the fallout of that. Just for example. There are some things that could get more difficult, could get harder. And I hope no one's ever misinformed or mistaken enough to think that their life is going to get, to get easy just because. They obey the gospel because this is an agony. This is something that's going to be difficult, something that's going to be hard to do. But look at a phrase there that I, I, again, I'm admitting I've not ever seen or not ever paid enough attention to. Let us run with patience or endurance this race. I've got this highlighted, underlined, and, and boxed, which is a circle for me. That race, or the race, that is, the word I'm talking about, set, S-E-T, before us. The race that is set, set before us. Question in our minds, who set this race before us? God. God did. So on those mornings when we wake up and we think, here we go again. Or those evenings when we go to pillar our head and say, how or why did I have to go through that again? There's one answer. You've been running God's race. Every time. Now, if you want an answer as to why you're in that race, then maybe, just maybe, I can't be sure of this, only you and God would know, uh, maybe your studies should pick up in verse 5 and go through about verse 12. The chastisement of God could be a part of that. I'm, I'm only suggesting that could be part of your studies for later. Maybe God is using your race in that moment to be a wake-up call. And maybe He's calling upon you as He's asking here in verse 5, Do not despise my son. Don't despise my chastisement. I'm only trying to, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm only trying to rebuke you so that uh, you do not uh, despise my chastising and my scourging. I'm scourging and chastising those who I love. Maybe God is trying to uh, call our attention so that we look to Him. It's interesting that when people's lives are going great, they sometimes don't look to God. But when times get hard, often, that's the only place they do look. And that's based upon a situation, per situation uh, time or, or event per event thing based upon you and God and, and not always not every time 
But that's something to raise. But it does state here in our text, and for our purposes, it does simply state here that this race is set before us. Let me add something to that. It is set, and that word here can be translated as that which is fixed before us. That is, I cannot change the race I'm in. I think I spend too much of my life trying to just, I'll just, I'll just, if I do this, then I'll just make everything so much different. Maybe not. Now again, if I'm living in sin, surely if I turn toward God, I can make things different. And that's, that's one thing. But if I'm living in a life that's faithful to God, those times may be trials and troublesome, and that may just be God's way. When you found Jesus' disciples, and I'm just using one example. When you find Jesus' disciples, he goes up in a mountain to pray. Uh, He sends them across the pond there, the Sea of Galilee. He sends them across the Galilee. Tiberias is another way of describing that. Sends them across that lake, and it becomes boisterous. The seas are boisterous. The storm is out. It's about four-ish in the morning. He ends up coming to them walking on the water. What had they done that evening that was wrong? Nothing. Nothing. They had done nothing but right. Of the days of all days, they were probably most in the will of God that they had ever been, at least according to any of the preceding record that we find around the context in any of the gospel accounts that is recorded. They were doing right. They were in the will of God. Now mark this. You find the difficulties of nearly every Bible character and you'll just about nearly, nearly, not always, you'll nearly always find their greatest victories precede their deepest, darkest moments. Why that is, I can't tell you, but I see it happening. We have to know This race is set before us. It is fixed. It is unmovable. And so let me tell you something else about that fixed and unmovable race. We do not, we cannot necessarily change it. And we don't need to be looking at everybody else's race. My race is not David's race. I can't run yours. I can't run it for him. He can't run mine. And I need not be jealous of the race he gets to run. I think many times the reason I can't run the race that I run is because I look at the man across the street and I think, boy, I wish I had his life. I wish I could live like he lives. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about spiritual life. We have gotten really good as Christians about, uh, I don't think we've gotten really good, some have gotten pretty good about controlling ourselves so far as uh, backing away from the desires of material. My children this week, they have scriptures to memorize every week for Bible class. And this week was Matthew chapter... uh, Yeah, that helped if I knew them, wouldn't it? Matthew chapter 7. No, what chapter is it? 6. 6, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 19, 20, and 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures in, uh, on earth where moth and dust is corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. Uh, where your treasure is, there your heart may be also. 
That's the Jim Merle version if you were looking, probably. <laughs> We've gotten pretty good about avoiding that. We get a lot of teaching on that. But spiritual jealousy is sometimes a problem. Because we're trying to run another man's race. Can't run another man's race. We have to run the one God put us in. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Let's say, let me say it this way. This is, I'm just saying this because it's, it's good for my memory. God puts you in no better race and there's no better place for you. Number next. We have the endurance here. We finally get to go to verse 2. Next we have, very simply, the eyes. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising shame, was set down on the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase, looking unto Jesus. First of all, I want to just notice it from this perspective, and that is, just notice the picture. Let's look at the, the most simplistic part of this. Let's look at the picture. First of all, I've divided this into two categories. One, one of them is the accomplishments. He lists two accomplishments that Jesus had. He says that he is the author on the first hand, and he is the finisher of our faith. Now, you think about him being the author. I'm making this simple. As Marshall Keebler is reported of saying on that, he wrote the book on faith. He did a pretty good job of it. He is the originator or the epitome of, of what faith ought to be because what faith really was for Jesus was enduring life. As he walked on this earth, whether it be uh, during his entirety of his earthly ministry and what he dealt with, whether he was dealing with the devil as recorded uh, in, in Matthew's account, Matthew 4 is one of those places where you can find that, uh, the way he dealt with him, he really dealt with him. You say, well, he, he quoted scripture. He dealt with him through faith. He dealt with Satan by directing his, his intentions and his power through the faith that he had in God and his word. That's how he really did it. That was his secret. That was the golden key used to unlock the door to the power of God. It was faith. It was faith that allowed him to, to deliver the words that he did. It was faith that allowed him to deliver the word, uh, the wonders that he did. That is the works, the miracles that he performed. It was faith that brings his will upon these pages. That's how Jesus, the Christ, that's how he operated. He was the author of that. He was the finisher of that. That is, he was the completer. That is, he was the one who uh, put the polish on the top of it. He made it right. He made it to where you and I cannot, we don't have to look in here and say, well, you know, that's a, that's a pretty decent representation of faith. And if I can read between the lines and, and you know, kind of uh, make some assumptions and some, pre, you know, uh, imagine the way things ought to be. No, 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 no. We can see exactly what it's like to live. Exactly what God requires. That's his accomplishments. 
But look at his attitudes. He said he's the author, he's the finisher. But he says, who, that's speaking of Jesus, likewise still. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame. He sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. When he, that is, when he endured, that's the same word, by the way, when he endured the cross, when he bore up under the cross, when he dealt with the agony of the cross himself, he did that in such a way that he found joy in it. Now, you don't have to go into much detail, and you've heard all the sermons. uh, I don't think that you need to hear, but you've heard all the sermons you need to hear for tonight's purposes to understand that was not a typical joyful moment. That was not a time for tap dancing or for jumping and turning cartwheels. It was not. And I'm not about to tell you that he went down through there with with a smile on his face, laughing out loud. We know better than that. But in his heart of hearts, he knew what he was doing. I quoted in a phrase of the preachers of old before, and I use it myself, obviously, in quoting it. But it's very simple to say it's this. Happiness depends on happenstance. That is, if we're, if we're planning on being happy, that's based upon whatever's going on in that moment. You know, you're happy if you get the parking place right at the front door. You're happy if the red light changes right before you get there. That's happenstance. But joy depends on Jesus. For him, joy depends on saving our souls. He found joy. It says, likewise, he not only found joy, he said he despising shame, or did he despise the shame? Now, I realize the King James translation here and I'm not knocking it as I say that. Please understand me. But the way that looks, it's, it seems to say that, you know, he got really aggravated that he had to be shamed. I don't think that's at all the sense of this. I think what's being said is that he, when he saw, when the shame came to him, he despised the fact that other men thought this is so shameful. It's as if he stood there at the foot, or not at the foot, as if if when the cross dropped in the ground, here he is beaten to a pulp, nearly naked, whatever was going on, as if he hung there on the cross and thought, you know what, if this is all I've got to deal with to save every man who would ever walk, who wants to uh, follow after God's will, so be it. Shame, a shameful thing for man to to be placed on a cross, I'll do it. Despising the shame. And then the final word there, of course, we've covered, endure the cross. But back up just a little bit. The picture was those simple words, but what was the problem? That first phrase, looking unto. The phrase right there, looking unto, could be translated just as easily to be fixed on, fixing your eyes upon. The literal language, again, discovery light bulb for Jim Merle. The literal language means to look away from and then toward. 
Looking unto Jesus means look to Jesus exclusively. When I look to Jesus exclusively, I can't see anything else. Now that was exemplified, you remember, a similar occasion to what I mentioned a moment ago, but when Peter came walking on the water toward Jesus, what happened? Remember there? He saw the wind and the he saw the waves as they came up, and when he looked to the waves, guess what happened? He began to sink. He took his eyes off the Lord. He looked away from the Lord. The thing is, if he had continued to look at the Lord, we can assume, and it's seemingly taught in the context at that point in time on that account and occasion, that he would have stayed on top of the water. He'd have continued to walking toward the Lord. Here, the language says you're to look. Toward Jesus, and in looking toward Jesus, you can do nothing but look away from the rest of the world. Now again, I think I said this morning at some point, I appreciate, I couldn't do without, I'll add that part, I couldn't do without, I I love the encouragement that I gained from other Christians. Many of them right here in this congregation. But at times, if the only encouragement and I have that would help me to endure was what I get from you or some other human being, I would die. Because I can't look at you and look at Jesus like I ought. It's not possible. Now there, there's a way in which you and I can stand side by side and you know what it is to have peripheral vision, right? If you get right up close to me, we can, I can look to Jesus and I know you're there. I can, I can sense and I can feel your presence. I can, I can know that we're, we're in the same realm of, of one another. I can know that you're, you're with me on certain things, but I cannot look to Jesus, and then spend my time and saying, well, right now the Lord's not helping me. I sure need you. I, I can't go to you for my strength. My strength is not in another man. It's just not. It can't be. And that's been one of my failures. I'm admitting right now. You put your confidence in another person, and when that person fails you, you are flat on your face. Until you can pick yourself up and look back to the Lord. Because sometimes people drop out. Sometimes people trip up. Sometimes people just want to go sit in the stands. And if that's what you look to, you're going to drop out. You're going to trip up. You're going to sit in the stands. Now, I'll give you evidence of that. You watch. Or you think back. You've known people who've occupied place, held seats and occupied positions in these pews 
over the years, over time, or anywhere else you've ever worshipped, and you've seen them, they've been as faithful as anybody until their spouse or their parent or their brother or sister or friend or whoever it is, somebody they really put a lot of stock in and relied on until they fell away, and then time would tell what their faith was all about. And if someone dug deeply and examined what really happened, if they had had their own eyes on Jesus, they would not have fallen. It wouldn't matter what the rest of the pew or the rest of the building did. It really wouldn't. Looking away from and toward. That's what this word's talking about. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finish of our faith. Friends, the church itself will sometimes pull us down. It's about the eyes. But next, also look ahead. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, sat down on the right hand of the throne of God, Verse 3, 4, consider him. Consider him that endured, same word as patience, same word as endured ahead of this, same word as endured, that's right here obviously, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. The phrase here, consider him. This word consider, uh, the word consider, as you're looking at it, in the English is only found in the book of Hebrews four times. Four times. I'll give you all four references. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 7. Chapter 10 and verse 24. And here chapter 12 and verse 3. That's all four times you find the English word consider. Chapter 3 and verse 1, chapter 7 and verse 4, chapter 10 and verse 24, the word consider just simply means look at them. Take a look. Take a look. The first time it talks about Jesus, the second time it talks about Jesus, it mentions there that he's apostle slash high priest, which you've got to think through and look at the context to understand. The third time it talks about our brethren. And it says look at them. Just look at them. The fourth time, chapter 12 in verse 3, consider English. It's backed up by a Greek word that is not used ever again in the Greek translation. It is only used one time and it's right here. Never is it used ever again. So why is that significant? I, I don't have the mind of God but if you've got one word that you use one time, there must be something there. I don't think there's a word in the language that I use that I've only used one time and never said it again. But it says something to me about its exclusiveness and maybe, maybe it's its purpose. What the word means here, and we're going to have a lot to say about it, but let me say this much already. 
The word consider, consider him. Of course, the him here is Jesus. It's the Jesus of verse 3, of verse 2. What the word consider here means, first of all, it means analyze him. It literally means do the math. It means think this thing through. That's more than look. You know, a dog runs by and says, look at that. Look, there's a dog in the church building. That's, that's a whole different thing. As, as I say, it ain't going to happen, but if Jesus walked through the door and I said, look at that, you know I've got a whole lot more to, for you to look at than a dog running by. It's a different word I would use then, even though I might say the same word. It'd be a different thing I'm describing. Analyze. Do the math. Think this through. Study on it. That's what's being used here. That's the exclusive, if you want to call it that, Greek word that's here. Now, I'm facing get really Greeky, Greeky or geeky, whichever one you want to call it. And if you want to write this down or write this off, you can do it either way you want to do it. But I want you to just, just listen to this for just a minute. And I've had to write this down so I could even remember it. This word right here, consider, first of all, it is in what's called the imperative mood. The imperative mood means this is a command. This has to be done. This is not a suggestion right here. This is not uh, God speaking, speaking through a pen and saying, you know, if you, if you want to you think about Jesus a little bit, give it a shot. He's saying, do this. You don't have a choice. It's in the imperative mood. That's this word. Secondarily, this word consider is not only in the imperative mood, it's in what's called the middle voice. That means you've got to do this yourself. Nobody else can do it for you. What that really means is the preacher, me, I can sit down and shut up because I can't tell you enough about Jesus for you to know what you need to know. You've got to do it yourself. The third thing you can know about this word that's so interesting, it's in the first person, aorist. Now, all that means is you consider him right now. It's right hidden in this word. Consider him right now, not tomorrow. Don't base this on your studies from last week or last, last year. You can't say, well, I studied the Bible last year. I mean, when I was a kid, I had some good Bible classes. He's saying consider him now. The next thing you can learn about this word is in the second person plural, which means consider all or everything about him. So first of all, it's a command. Secondly, it's something you do for yourself. Thirdly, it's something you do right now. And fourthly, it's something you have to do completely. Now, where does that bring us? It brings us to having to really put our heads in to this book. For me, probably more than I ever have. That means, and I'm just going to use for an example, that means where we find the most about our Lord, that means these gospel accounts. Where I say, you know what, I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John so many times. I mean, come on, it's just... Four different views and perspectives on the life of Christ. I mean, come on, a lot of these things, a lot of these things, it's the same old story. I mean, 
Two or three of them got sermons on the mounts and he talks about the poor in spirit a bunch of times and I know what that means. He says, you better consider that. I mean, there are several times Jesus talks to a woman who's in adultery and the way he deals with her, I mean, you got Matthew's account and what he says about that and you got Mark, he talks to Mark about marriage and all this and I understand that. He said, you better consider that. And the list goes on. Consider him. There's so much, so much rolled up in that word. Now, let's just look at the rest of the verse very quickly. Consider him, him that endured. That is, he's doing the same thing that we're being told to do, to be enduring, to be patient. Consider him that endured such contradiction. I would translate that. You remember I had the Jim Merle translation, which is worthless, but I would, I would translate that hostility. Some translations actually use the word. He endured much hostility, hatred, you could even say. He endured contradiction, the contradiction of sinners. And then he tells us why we need to do that. Lest ye be weary. You could put a word in there for explanation. Lest you grow weary. You turn that over. I like to turn coins over. He says, if you don't consider Jesus, you're just going to get weary. You're just going to get to a point you cannot go on. And faint, that is to be faint in your Minds. You could insert in place the word mind there, faint in heart. And in that place you could say this. You consider Jesus, you're going to die. Now what does that say for some of us who don't take the time to commit ourselves to Sunday morning Bible class or Wednesday night Bible study or some form of daily Bible study or to some point, some part, some, some means of prayer every day. What does that say? That says... We're going to die. We can endure. And I promised I'd tie verse 4 to this. Some, some look at this and say, well, I don't know where verse 4 goes. It just doesn't seem to go with the first three verses, and it certainly doesn't go with the next six. I think it goes with the first three. That's just my suggestion. Verse 4 which I would call the end. We put a lot of E words together. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That's the end. I think that could be stated such as this, and it's the way I've chosen to kind of restate it. You've not had to resist even to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. 
He had to endure until he had to die. But he did not die for himself. That's not a new fact. That's not an overlooked discovery. That's something we've all known. Probably as long as we've known the Bible exists. But he died for us. If there's anything you and I need today, more than we ever have, it is this. It is faithfulness. And being able to run with endurance. We have the encouragement right upon these pages. Sure, we're encouraged by others around us today. Sure, we have examples in our lives, our parents, grandparents, some of us that have gone. They encourage us. We've got God's encouragers too. We have to be aware of the encumbrance. The things that are around us that are in our lives, they're not bad. They just take up our time. They just keep us from God. We cannot be entangled. The sin of this world is selfishness. And we can all be involved. We've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. He is our ultimate example. We've got to consider him. Because our ultimate end is we're going to die without him. And if you're here this night and you're not a child of God's, then your ultimate end is death, and it's death without him. And you need to obey him this evening. Through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, you can connect with his blood tonight, and you can be added to his church, and you can have a new life, a life that you cannot have without him. Spiritual life. It's our prayer and it's always been his wish and his desire that you would do that. If you're here tonight and you are a child of God, all that I want to encourage you to do is to keep on going till the end. And don't ever be fooled with the fact that because you've been a Christian for a number of months, a number of years, that things will not take a turn. They may very well for you. And it may not be that you're, that you're just going to have anybody come in and try to make you stumble. You may fall all by yourself. And it's going to only be through the wisdom of God and based upon these words that you're going to be able to maintain yourself. Consider Jesus while together we stand and as we sing.